Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about a new access and participation agenda at OFS, a new social mobility ranking, and what graduates think of the loan system. It's all coming up. Universities clearly need to play a very important part in raising standards, raising um, expectations on part of everybody, not just the, those who go to their institution. But we can't do everything. We can't be responsible for the failure of the school system either. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us defog the HG policy windshield. As usual, we have two fantastic guests. In Hove, between his roles at Sussex and Birmingham, it's Adam Tuchel. Adam, you're hired for the week. I had my COVID booster jab yesterday and I've got a very sore arm. Ah, but very well protected. And in Millback Tower, London, it's Anne-Marie Canning, CEO of the Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week. And we finally uh, got the announcement out that Essex and the Brilliant Club are working together to boost uh, black progression into postgraduate research, which is wonderful because we've been working on that for months. Super. Right. We start this week with the big speech by Michelle Donnellan about access and participation and flurry of guidance and new policies and new director for fair access and more. Um, Adam, what's going on? So, Mark, yesterday, Michelle Donnellan signalled what is a really major shift in government policy towards access and participation. Um, rather than focusing on recruitment, universities are now expected to help to raise standards and expectations for all school students. Um, it's, this is, we really need not to underestimate what a major shift in policy this is. It suggests existing access and participation plans will need to be rewritten, probably halfway through. And there will be a lot to talk about around this. Where do we start? There's a new director for fair access as well that's going to be delivering all this. Um, Anne-Marie, uh, help us fill in some of the some of the policy meat behind behind this. What is what is the government trying to do here exactly? Yeah, so I think yesterday sort of represented an articulation of how they see widening participation, student success, and the levelling up agenda coming together. It's a real articulation of that. Um, and I think we're essentially seeing the Department for Education retooling existing resource towards the levelling up agenda. So uh, I think there's a sense uh, more broadly that the you know volume of cash in access and participation plans doesn't match the level of impact right now. So it's, it is quite a big intervention, a few key things want to see a focus on the joined up approach between getting in and getting on focus on degree apprenticeships reducing dropout or non-continuation and boosting labour market outcomes and we also had the announcement about the lifelong learning um, entitlement as well so um, big big moment for, for those folks working in this area and big moment for universities more broadly I do feel like yesterday signalled a bit of a change from some of the hostility maybe we've seen in, in recent years I think it's um, challenging but constructive what we saw in terms of the guidance yeah there's there's good and bad here isn't there adam i mean the um the, the there's a lot of grumbling behind the scenes about the fact that access and participation plans are going to have to be 
torn up and and rewritten i mean that and in the name of reducing bureaucracy i mean it's it's a bit a bit laughable that is quite a big burden isn't it i mean i hope you don't mind if i push back on that mark i've I've written eight access and participation plans in my career uh, when they used to be yearly i've always had concerns that five years is too long for an access and participation plan if you think about schools they write a yearly school improvement plan Uh, i i thought a horizon of three years was much more constructive so um i have been slightly concerned that the app's will age out as the education ecosystem changes so if you look at covid hitting really really hard you know where was the latitude to sort of um change direction and, and amend those app's so I, I am less concerned about that. Uh, essentially, universities will have had two and a half, nearly three years before they formulate these new APPs with the new guidance in mind. Oh, grumbling aside on, uh, on, the, on having to redo those, the, the, the way the sector responds to this whole agenda is pretty key there, isn't it, Adam? I, I think so. Listen, I, think, um, from, I don't think we need to complain too much about the change in policy, quite the change in policy. I think there are a whole bunch of things which we do need to think really hard about. But I've been saying for quite some time that the incentives that we have in the current system actually fa- fa- favour the narrow rather than the common good activities. And I think if we see what's happened over the last five or, or, or eight years or so, universities have tended to pull out of broader activities which supports young people um, in favour of the recruitment activity. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad objective. I do have worries that we just don't have the money to do everything that is wanted from public policy. And universities clearly need to play a very important part in raising standards, raising um, expectations on the part of everybody, not just the, those who go to their institution. But we can't do everything. We can't be responsible for the failure of the school system either. Just say, I love that point about the common good. And I think universities should see this as an, as an invitation uh, for sort of educational opportunity to be part of that broader endeavour. Because what we're seeing in this in this guidance is rather than focus focusing on individual students, which is very much where the regulatory push has been. This is about thinking about places and people. It's about thinking about institutions as well as individuals. And I think that's much healthier. So my experiences working on an opportunity area in Bradford, it was that common endeavour which has enabled us to really start to make serious changes for young people in the city, with universities as part of a cast of actors who are essentially uh, work, working towards boosting educational outcomes. So I think that's um, really important. Um, I mean, I, I spoke at a conference yesterday about this sort of squeamishness. I think we, we need to really get past as a sector this idea. I would say 10 years ago, we used to say to, uh, you know, universities used to say in response to this school standards question, look, if schools can't get the grades, then, then that's really their issue. Uh, we've moved on from that. I would say the past five years have been characterised around a message of we don't know how to do that. Um, and I don't think that really washes either with the general public or, or actually in terms of common sense. We produce teachers, we do educational research and we've got huge access and participation uh, budgets. Those budgets, I mean, the budget of a single Russell Group University in access and participation terms dwarfs the entire cash available to the Bradford Opportunity Area. So for me, I I just think there's huge potential here and there's huge latitude for the universities that really want to grab a hold of this agenda and and run with it. But there's a real real problem here because um, if you think about this, geographically and regionally in the way that we will be expected to do so and universities will have to support their local areas and I think that's a fine fine objective. If you think of the difference between say a University of Oxford and a University of Sunderland, the money and the resource available to Oxford is huge 
but fundamentally in Oxford, there's a problem down in Blackbird Lees and, and in Cowley. Um, but if you think about Sunderland, the resources available to Sunderland are much, much smaller and the challenge is much greater. And this is, this is where we need to think really hard about how we make this a collective effort. Yeah, I think I think the, the Smart Access and Participation Plan will recognise both a sort of national contribution and a, a local place-based uh, contribution uh, from a university, won't it? Uh, hopefully anyway. And, and, and how will schools uh, respond to the kind of the, the increased amount of attention they're going to start getting from universities, Anne-Marie? Uh, okay, so, I mean, some universities have, you know, a set of relationships with schools that are very, very strong, that built on co-producing activities together. Other schools have been presented with menus of activities that they can select from. So the real trick is to move into the, the first space, which is working constructively with schools to, to you know, establish common self-interest between the school and the university. You know, some universities have, have sponsored um, schools, some have helped to set up things like math schools. So it really is variable. Um, for me, it's all about, as I say, finding the thing that the school has identified um, or, or a group of schools has identified is a real priority for them and leaning into that together. So yesterday there was a lot of talk about tutoring, for example. Um, you know, certainly in some areas of the country, it's really difficult to get tutoring um, operating at scale in schools. So that might be particularly pertinent in, in one region, but the agenda might be different elsewhere. So for me, it's about schools and universities really holding hands together um, but you know we've had we've had you know ten years of activity through the the higher tuition fee regime and regulation. So hopefully some of those um, relationships are already there. I think on a um, on a sort of macro political level, there's a few really good things here for universities in that. By I think Michelle Donnan linking um, linking this agenda to leveling up is good because when you put universities on the same side as the government's agenda that's, that's that tends towards good uh, it's obviously a challenge it's obviously complicated but that's a lot better than saying universities and or, or you know higher education opportunities aren't part of our you know macro economic grand plan so i'd say there is some really good stuff uh, for, for that and, and i think you're right Anne on the on the tone as well it does seem it does seem slightly more constructive um, and a bit more thoughtful than some of the offerings we've had in the last eighteen months. So I'm 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 wondering if this signals a, a slight cooling of cooling of temperatures. I, I I hope I hope so, and I I think so, and I think that universities always have a tendency to think that any change is retrogressive or any changes need to be needs to be resisted. And you know, as I said earlier, and I think Anne Marie's been very cogent on, we do have an important part to play here, and universities are important institutions both in our regions and in our country. And if we can do if we can do some good and we can make the world better, then actually that's what we're here for. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Mike Kerrigan, head of research and insights for access and participation at Nottingham Trent University. Myself and my colleague Ed Foster, who's head of student engagement and analytics at NTU, have written a blog about student engagement and success amidst the pandemic. As we head into a kind of new normal with students returning to campus, albeit not quite at the levels we saw pre-pandemic. We reflect in our blog on the outcomes of the 2020-21 cohort that were hit the hardest. We utilised our learning analytics dashboard to monitor student online engagement on a weekly basis in that year. Perhaps surprisingly, students' engagement with their studies held up remarkably well. And where students did appear to be disengaged, we piloted a calling service to offer pastoral support and signpost them as appropriate. As we've crunched our end of academic year numbers, 
We found that students have successfully progressed and attained at levels similar to previous COVID-free years. I think these successful outcomes are testament to our students' resilience against the backdrop of such unprecedented challenging circumstances. If you haven't already heard about the neuroscientist Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore and her work, my blog will inspire you to find out more, I hope. For me, finding her research was a light bulb moment in being able to understand why the young people I worked with always seem to find careers and employability so difficult to engage with. But it is relevant for anyone working with young people in any context. The recent conversations around student futures seems a good time to shine a light on just how difficult young people find making decisions for their future. In the blog, I share and interpret Professor Blakemore's research and join the dots with other research that is relevant to this topic, which I use when I work with academic colleagues and other stakeholders in the work that I do at King's College, London and at other institutions. This is particularly relevant now when all our young people are having to navigate a changed working environment post-COVID and we already knew that the structures of the labour market of the future will be less predictable than previous generations experienced. Do read the blog and start a conversation at your institution, whatever your role in higher education. Now, IFS and the Southern Trust are out this week with a new social mobility ranking. Uh, Anne-Marie, talk us through it. Yeah, big day yesterday for the world of widening participation um, and, and student success. So yesterday was the report of the IFS and Sutton Trust research uh, looking at essentially social mobility rates for each institution uh, in the UK. Uh, and the way they sort of calculate this is the proportion of FSM students, so free school meal students, uh, and the future earning of those students in the labour market. A uh, few, few key headlines for us to uh, be aware of. Uh, the least selective post-1992s came out on top in terms of delivering great results uh, for that, that set of students. The Russell Group as a whole um, was, was fairly low. Um, they do have great outcomes for FSM students that access their institutions, but the percentage um, attending those universities is, is very low. Um, but honourable shout out to Queen Mary University London, who, who topped the league table. Uh, and there were three other Russell groups in the top 20. So um, it is a little bit more nuanced than maybe that headline makes out. We saw a really strong London effect, um, you know, students staying on um, after attending university in London and making the most of those higher salaries and, and labour market opportunities. Um, and for me, perhaps the most interesting thing is this really distinct course element, which I'm, I'm so pleased is starting to come through as part of the debate, um, particular um, high achievers, if you want to call them, in terms of uh, uh, mobility rates, pharmacology, computing and law. So there's a lot in this, isn't there? I mean, this is a really, really interesting piece of work. And, the, and my colleagues have been delving into the data on uh, uh, on the site. You can you can play with some of the tables and the, and the charts in, a, in, in an interactive way. But there's, a, there's also a kind of hidden challenge to university in, in to universities isn't there Adam I mean um when you go when you drill down into uh, a course level uh have you how have you defined course I know I know that's I know that's slightly contentious but but when you essentially go down on a, on a course level you, you're going to look at if you look at a large university you're going to see great variation on outcomes across different courses aren't you yeah absolutely and I would encourage people who haven't yet seen it to take a look at David Kernahan's really brilliant piece on on the wonky site, and I'm not just saying that because if it's the wonky show. Um, what David always does with the data is he manages to visualize them and allow you to, to cut into them at a very disaggregated level and absolutely demonstrates 
um, both the, the point about London is that, I mean, Queen Mary's done a great job. I messaged um, the, uh, Colin Bailey yesterday to say what a great job they've done. But there is a real London effect. But this discipline issue as well. And, um, you know, on the whole, I think we've tended to use data which are aggregated and we've tended to say things are pretty good um, or they're pretty bad. But this really allows us to say that if you do a pharmacology degree, then your chances of success are much better than if you do a degree in, in say, philosophy, um, irrespective of the place you go. And then if you overlay that with, um, with the institution and overlay that particularly with where you live, then you can make really, really interesting um, comparisons. Mm. And on, but on a kind of institutional management level, I, I, I assume that means you can also make really smart management decisions about the portfolio and what's working and what isn't in a, in a, in a new kind of way. Well, I think you can certainly ask questions of it. I, the, the challenge, of course, is that not everybody is motivated by doing not, – not every student is motivated by wanting to, um, to earn a, a particular salary. Um, and there, are, there continues to be very, very high demand for programs and courses which uh, don't have the same value added that the IF, IFS is, is pointing to. So I think we need – this is a very important piece of data or, or set of data – but we don't want – I think all we can do is we can say, what are the questions that we ought to be asking ourselves? And how transparent do we need to be with students? Because ultimately, they are rational people who, with information, ought to be making rational choices rather than us telling them, you need to go into a particular place or program. I mean, what about how this might be used uh, in, in regulation, Anne-Marie? I mean, would you, should this be plugged into kind of OFS – uh, conditions of registration and, and, the, and the like? Well, um, uh, I think the sector's been hungry for this sort of analysis for a while. Um, in the US, this data has existed from, you know, Professor Raj Shetty and folks for years and, you know, showed places like Stony Brook doing brilliantly well, um, whereas the Ivy's um, perhaps struggling. So I think it's a really healthy data set for us to have. Um, I think naturally it will become part of the sort of student outcomes agenda and debate. Um, you know, all albeit with those caveats that, that Adam has sort of um, set out. Um, I, do, I do have some sympathy, though, for universities who have not had data on free school meals in terms of, you know, their widening participation and admissions practices. Uh, and so, you know, a bit of a blinder from the Sutton Trust really led the charge on getting that data um, made available. So, you know, schools will now have a shared language of free school meals um, with universities. And, you know, universities can start to have activities that really support these learners both before uh, they come to the university and once they're there as well. Um, so it will enable, you know, people who are enacting, uh, you know, access and participation plans to really focus their efforts on the students who potentially will, will benefit from the support the most. And what about students? What about, what about, people, what about prospective students, people thinking about university? Could this data be of any use at all? Is the time lag too great? I mean, doesn't it show that, that students are in, incredibly savvy and smart? Um, they, they've been flocking to the courses, essentially, that offer... Um, you know, these sorts of great social mobility trajectories, you know, computing, law, those have been incredibly oversubscribed for years. I do, I do worry that it'll, um, uh, uh, you know, create a density of further um, competitiveness in those, um, those course areas. Um, so, it, you know, treat it with caution, as I always recommend to any student, any data set like this. You know, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt and think about your individual, you know, hopes, dreams, aspirations. Um, but, you know, certainly I think there'll be some students who, who do want to look at this. I, I, I do agree with that. I think the... Um I think there are just a couple of points I would, I'd make, though. First is that we need to avoid a place 
getting to a place where um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds don't go to places where their social capital, uh, as opposed to their graduate earnings, are enhanced significantly. And I think, you know, the, the you know the thing that comes out very clearly from this is the most elite organi- uh, elite universities actually do pretty badly on this. But getting to um, getting students, as the Sutton Trust has always pushed, of course, getting students to the most elite organisations and elite institutions is actually really good for them, even if it's not making much of a difference at the collective level. And the, the second thing is, if we just focus on individual programmes, then a subject like pharma, pharmacology goes to a professional qualification and there are a limited number of jobs for pharmacists in the country. So if we see a mass expansion of pharmacy programmes, then what you're going to see is you're going to see a reversal of this kind of thing, as you will do with law, because most people who study law don't become lawyers, as you could do with business studies. So I think we just need to recognise that these data are really helpful. They're time-lagged. Um, we shouldn't dismiss them at all. And the IFS is really helpful to us in that. But they're not the be-all and end-all. Can, can you explain on what you mean by um, not good collectively, but good for the individual for, for going to an elite university? So if you're... Um, if you're if you're a student from a disadvantaged background and you go to Oxford, then you it will almost certainly make a very big difference to you as an individual. What it's unlikely to do is make a very big difference to the community from which you come, um, and that's simply that's simply what I mean. So I think that's a good thing. I mean, I genuinely think it's a it's a really good thing because social mobility is a great thing, but it's not the same as transforming society. And it's almost certainly not the same as leveling up. Yes, I was, that's what I was. That's what I was thinking. It's not. It's not the same as levelling up, is it? Under under kind of Michelle Donlan's definition this week. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it is a useful tool, but we need to think about the, the collective and how we can continue to make uh, a significant contribution to um, to improving Britain. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So how do women get their way into universities? The clear way that it starts to develop is that universities um, are now working as examining bodies. So the university sets the exam and students in the colleges come and take um, the exams. So there's an exam to get in and then there's an exam as you go through the university because the matriculation exam, the exam to show that you've got the knowledge to get into university, becomes in effect a a qualification in its own right. So um, Emily Davis, uh, who writes a book, uh, a whole series of things on... uh, um, uh, why women should be allowed into higher education. Good to actually get a a reference to that rather than me rambling like that. Um, Emily Davis um, sets out the argument quite clearly that what she wants when she's educating uh, a small group of women in a small domestic setting is a searching examination indispensable as a guarantee for the qualifications of teachers. She wants the women to have the test of sitting the examination. So what she wants is effectively a copy of the exam paper that the men are taking, um, and she wants to be able to set that as an exam for her uh, female students to take. So that's all she wants. She doesn't want degrees. She doesn't want them to be taught alongside them. She just wants them to be able to take the same exam as the same kind of spur to their learning that the men are having to do. So she sets off in that kind of way. And we get small domestic scale colleges set up on that way. In London, you get Bedford College. Uh, Girton College is set up near Cambridge. The idea being that 
um, the men from the universities, the professors could come and give some lessons um, to the women, uh, and therefore they get the same kind of learning. But obviously, they're not met, they're not part of the university, not not engaged in the overall work. So. Uh, that lasts um, for about uh, 20, 30 years. That kind of system uh, is okay. But that starts to come really tested when the civic universities have to think, are they going to let women in at the same point as men? And there's quite an opening up uh, that comes. But it has to be worked its way through. So as an example, Owens College um, comes under pressure in the 1870s to admit uh, women to its lectures. And so it says, well, yes, we, we agree that we should have an experiment, but they can't join our college. We'll set up a separate college. So they set up the Manchester and Salford Women's College um, to run alongside Owens College. Um, uh, and that lasts three years until the committee says, well, can you not just take charge of it? And then they say, well, after a couple more years, they go, well, yeah, actually, that's that's not really working out will set up a women's department. So slowly, the, the women gain entry to the university. At UCL, um, which decides it also wants to uh, teach women, um, it also has this worry about co-education. It's not clear that this is a good thing for either of the two sexes. So it has a go uh, at segregating the men from the women. So it has to think. It's going to use the same premises. Uh, so it has to think how it's going to do that. It doesn't want the mixing. They have to have separate lectures. They have to use separate laboratories. Uh, so it has this brainwave that it doesn't want the mingling uh, in between lectures even uh, of putting the women's lectures on the half hour um, so that they can't possibly mingle with the men because they, they won't even be in the corridors at the same time because their, their lectures are staggered. And they adapt the laboratories to put in different entrances so that women can come in from a different entrance to the men so that there's a, a clear segregation. Now, again, that doesn't last over time. And, and, and eventually, you know, quite quickly, they relent uh, and co-education comes from from that. But that idea that mixing the students is going to be a major problem continues to the 19th century. So when Thomas Holloway sets out to uh, make a, a major uh, bequest, his wife has persuaded him that what he really wants to do uh, is set up uh, the best education suitable for women of the middle and upper classes. Another great access statement uh, uh, quote. Um, uh, he sets up sufficient money to found a women's college. He puts it Nicely out of the way, and obviously in the most splendid building you can possibly imagine. Um, but it's an idea that it's going to be a, a women's college, uh, and it will set off. There's a big discussion in in the late 1890s as whether it should be the nucleus of a women's university. So a whole university and an examining university just for women. Uh, but eventually they decide they should join the University of London and they go off in that basis. So Oxford and Cambridge have now got these colleges nearby, which are educating people in the same curriculum, but they are not members of the university. So they've got this kind of beginning of a mingling, because Oxford and Cambridge is full of independent colleges, so you could put a women's college in either of those two cities, and it can educate people to the same thing. They can go, eventually they're allowed access to the same lectures, um, but they have to work out what to do. So um, the Cambridge uh, solution, which comes after a lot of agitation from uh, progressive uh, academic staff to say, well, we should have women as members of the university, but a lot of reaction from uh, what I, you, know, you have to call the reactionary clergy, who are all members of the university and have the right to vote on any university statute, who can come back 
by train to vote down any clauses that might look like um, that uh, women might be allowed in. And there's a big celebration when they vote down the clause that women should be admitted to the university. They have a, there's a great picture of it of um, a huge throng outside King's College and men celebrating the fact that they've kept women out of the university. They have a, an effigy of a woman on a bike. Uh, she's wearing bloomers because they're worried that women are going to be riding around Cambridge in their bloomers. The whole place is going to change. And they get so excitable uh, that they go out to one of the women's colleges and rattle the gates so violently that women are scared inside that the, the, the you know violence is going to be done to them. So they get very overexcited. So what they end up with is this wonderful, if you're part of this internal thing, compromise, whereby the women can take the exams, continue to take the exams, and they can be admitted as students, um, but they can't become members of the university by getting the degree. So they get to know how well they did in the exam, but they don't get the BA or MA degree, and they're not allowed to do that. Now, unfortunately, because Cambridge has this big reaction against it, um, they don't try uh, during the interwar years to overturn it or that it gets put back. So it's only in 1948 that the University of Cambridge admits its first woman graduate, who is an honorary graduate. The, um, Queen Elizabeth uh, is admitted as the, as the first uh, woman graduate of the University of Cambridge. So a huge amount of, of tussle about this. So Cambridge is a very strict list system in terms of its thing. So women knew that they were best in their year at the subject didn't get the degree. So obviously, uh, things are much, much better now. Everything is solved. Uh, there's no problems at all. And that's all fine. There's a, obviously a series of gradations about uh, Oxford colleges becoming mixed, um, about uh, the ability of women to become academic staff. You know, so we better and better and better. But if you think how many, you know, we're, we're dealing with a generation that was alive in 1948. This is a generation that women could not graduate at you know, one of our universities until after that point. Now my colleague Jim is here to tell us about an exciting event we've got happening in February. Uh, it's Jim from the team here and very excited to say that in February our event The Secret Life of Students is back. Uh, now in its third year it's all about how we rethink the student experience, bringing together experts, sector leaders and professionals as well as student leaders and student junior managers to tackle difficult challenges and work together to transform higher education to better meet the needs of the next generation of students. This year we're doing diversity differently, rethinking the outdated model of designing learning environments based on an imagined normal student and then applying sticking plaster interventions based on diverse student characteristics. Uh, we'll reflect on the findings of the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission. We'll consider developments in regulatory regimes for access, diversity and equality. We'll have a wealth of new insight to share from our own research with students and higher education professionals and leaders. And we'll think through how engaging with students' lived experience can transform strategy, policy and delivery. And we'll consider what students are experiencing and saying about harassment and discrimination and where the boundaries are between security and freedom. All of that, lots more. The Secret Life of Students, London, February the 15th. To find out more and book tickets, go right now to wonky.com forward slash events. We talk a lot, indeed, possibly too much about graduate outcomes in terms of salary. It's an inexact and hugely controversial measure of the value of the university experience. But in the absence of anything better, it's been seized upon by policymakers 
and works as an example of how to find a poor quality course. But in the middle of all this policy noise, there is still worthwhile research to be done. A new paper from HESA and the Economics Department at Warwick takes a longitudinal view of the graduate salary premium. Using data based on two well-established cohort studies, it traces a decline of 10% in the difference between the average age 25 earnings of graduates and non-graduates born in the early 80s and early 90s. This extends the established pattern of decline more usually attributed to a growth in the proportion of young people that are graduates. But as this growth tails off, the researchers argue, so should the decline in the premium. But another interesting thing is happening too. Employers appear to be increasing their use of degree classifications in appointing graduates. For the 19th birth cohort, there is a 10% salary premium age 25 for those who got a first or upper second against other graduates. Indeed, those with a 2-2, a third or another kind of degree saw a premium of just 3% over non-graduates. But will this hold? The rise in better degree classifications awarded recently suggests that both students and providers are wise to the need to do well to get on, but a growth in the population with a first or two one will lower this premium inevitably. And employers will need to move to other measures to discriminate the exceptional from the merely good. Perhaps a measure that has nothing at all to do with a degree or how you did at university. Finally, Happier out this morning with a new report about graduate earnings and what graduates think about the loan system. Adam, talk us through it. This morning, Happier have published a report which explores the psychological impact of debt on recent graduates. One of the headline, really, the, although graduates found their debt was manageable, the mental toll is very high. And there are a couple of quotes in the report which I think are worth telling. So one respondent said, it makes you feel sick and horrible, you know, an absolute horrible feeling inside your chest and your stomach. It's not so much how much is left to pay, you know, it's wiped off, but how much money have I paid that was just interest, that wasn't actually money I borrowed. And I think um, there really is a big issue, not about the debt per se, but about the way people understand it. And I think at some point we might need to think about whether even naming it as debt or reframing it as a graduate tax, something we need to come back to. So this is an interesting report, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it says the... The system itself is is kind of manageable on a objective level as 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 a kind of uh, repayment system for individuals, but it does create an enormous it does it does have with it an enormous kind of weight and a, an emotional toll that um, is is building, isn't it? Because as we have more and more graduates go through the system, I'm really I've always been really torn about this this issue because I, on on the on the one hand it feels like quite a progressive system in that a lot of the a lot of the risk is with um the government if if individuals can't pay it back but it's undeniable that individuals feel this debt as uh very significant i mean what's what's to be done well listen i I mean my my feeling is that part of it is about how we communicate it because the language of debt um is really very scary for people Um, it is in effect it's a graduate tax and Wonder, I wonder whether we have just got it wrong in describing it in the way. And there's a piece in The Guardian today about somebody who has um, £189,000 <laughs> debt. Yeah, yeah. Now, that person will never pay that back. It will, be, it will be written off. It's no different from paying a percentage extra on their income tax. But it's a really, really terrifying thought that you've got that kind of money owing. 
Uh, yeah, Anne Marie, does that the, does this report back up what you see? Does does it terrify people? I, I think it's really different for different students from different backgrounds. Essentially, what we've got in in the the current funding regime is um, something that is hitting the policy aim of enabling access to university for folks from all different backgrounds, but is hurting some students. Uh, and, and a significant set of students uh, emotionally and psychologically. Uh, and that's always been my deep suspicion. Uh, I agree with Adam. The framing around the student finance system, I think, is all wrong. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've argued this with Jim Dickinson before, which is we've, we've essentially um, got the worst of both worlds, which is students see it as a personal debt that they are carrying on their backs, but essentially is being paid off as a, as a sort of form of taxation. And so I do wonder if there was a way of framing this behaviour so it felt uh, different to students. Um, but the, the report is fantastic. I really hope it cuts through in this very busy week for sort of widening participation issues because it is a fantastic piece of work and it really strikes at your heart. Um, I mean, the things that students were saying weren't working. One, they the, the still feel tuition fees are too high. Two, the size of the debt is really daunting. They're very motivated about the interest rates. And I think this is really justified. The interest starting from day one. Oh, my gosh, what a kicker. You enroll on day one and you know you're accruing interest already. Doesn't seem very um, humane to me. Um, and then finally... Um, this idea of a never-ending repayment. And that's why I think, communications-wise and, and framing, we could do much better um, for students who are drawing down their loans. I mean, the, the repayment system is, is on the table currently. We're expecting, we're expecting changes to this imminently. So I'm, I'm, keen to get, I'm keen to get what would be on, your, on both of yours wish list. I mean, my real concern is that we, we continue to see a reduction in the income to universities because you know we've been sp speaking for the whole of the podcast about the need for universities to do more um but you know at the moment we're doing more for less and if we see a, if we see a cut in our income which i think is probably not likely at the moment but a cut in the in the nominal fee anyway which i think is probably not likely at the moment i think then we get into really quite dangerous territory and we're just about to annual reporting season some universities will have done very well last year but there are other universities that I know of who are facing really difficult challenges. Um, and so on my wish list is, at the very least, we don't see a further fee cut. Um, and I know that's challenging for students, but we need to be real that either society decides they're going to pay for students to go to university, in which case it comes out of general taxation, um, or students have to pay in the way that they currently do. Well, I would worry about reducing the threshold. I think if we reduce the threshold, then that becomes really quite a significant difference. I don't disagree with Anne-Marie at all um, about, the, um, about the size of the interest rates and starting, in starting paying at the beginning. I would be remiss if I didn't say that the interest rates is one of those potentially perception over reality things because it's the, it's the high-paying, higher-earning um, higher graduates that pay back the interest rates and it's, it's there to get the money back from them uh, and so they pay off, their, pay, pay off their debt, isn't it? It is. So maybe, maybe it is a time for us to start thinking about whether a graduate tax is just a better way of doing it. Anne-Marie, what's, um, what's on your wishes for the, the coming changes? Um, well, a, a couple of things, um, you know, directly from the students who took part in the research. First of all, they really value the, the sort of uh, repayment cut off of, of 25 years. Um, 
Um, so changes to that would be poorly received. Um, but also for, for these students, the repayment threshold is really symbolically important for them in that it sort of, one, offers a form of an insurance policy for them. It feels like a safe form of debt in a way for the students who, who talked about the repayment threshold. But two, and, and I'd not really thought about this, it's sort of seen as a, an aim in terms of post-graduation salary in that, oh, okay, I've hit enough to, to be able to start paying off. And they were quite proud of that. So I do think changes to the repayment threshold, although they might be sort of politically and in policy terms, you know, quite quite useful for a government that is seeking to uh, sort of massage the, the student loan um, uh, responsibilities it has. Um, I think it's going to be more... black hole. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it's also going to cut through more than potentially, I think, folks recognise. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper to anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Walkie Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to our website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks to Anne-Marie, Adam and everyone else at Team Wonky that makes it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.